So this Sunday, you know, instead of unfortunately watching great plays, which I would prefer to be doing, we're going to be talking about some of the great plays we believe should actually be in the Baseball Hall of Fame. And this is kind of coming off the announcement that the Players Association has rejected the most recent, uh, you know, offer from the owners without even proposing their own counter offer. So it's a little sad seeing that, you know, we really don't know when we're going to be having baseball in the near future. So, you know, we kind of thought it would be fun to discuss the memorable plays of the past. Yeah, we'd rather be playing, but we're going to look for some plays that um, are not on everybody's top 10 list, let's say. There's lots of famous plays, right? We but can- you kind of get a cookie cutter list at a certain point where you read the same plays are on everybody's top, you know, 15 or 20 list. I mean, you've got the Kurt Gibson home run. You've got the Mazarowski home run. And you get some of these plays where it's like they're talked about so much. Well, yes, they are undoubtedly super important plays in baseball history there's definitely other plays that deserve to be celebrated and mentioned and they're not always discussed and sometimes they're not even necessarily an amazing play in the context of being good for their game they're just indelible baseball moments and i checked the hall of fame site and i haven't been there in a long time so i didn't remember they don't have a specific place in the hall of fame for memorable plays they they're, they're part of other exhibits they could be but they're not necessarily a dedicated area and we think for fans certainly for me i'd love to walk in there and see an aggregation of great plays i, I think that's, that's it's a really cool thing because there are these kind of moments that are mythologized in baseball history that people remember and then you weren't even necessarily there to watch but you know about it and i think it speaks to the importance of the history of the game because i think especially in america baseball more than other the sport has this like rich tapestry of history that is extremely important to the game today the way people look at these teams that they've gone through the ages and these plays are some of the most important moments in certain franchises' histories. And to not celebrate those, even if maybe it wasn't connected to being an all-time great thing, I think is important. I, I you know, I agree with that. And I and I think uh, probably a good thing to up for just to talk about a couple of those plays. So why don't you start uh, and um, and let's see what you got. So this was one that I, I remember very clearly. It happened when I was a kid. And I I think more than anything else, more than any play I can really remember, it encapsulates the idea of a heads-up baseball play. And I hate – part of me hates giving it to them because, especially as a kid, I thought he was vastly overrated. It wasn't until now that I kind of looked back on his stats and been like, he was actually pretty good, was the Jeter flip play. (laughs) So to kind of like set the stage just because I know it's been, you know, almost 20 years since that play happened – my once batting practice partner, Terrence Long, we actually just a side story. I actually got to play with Terrence Long when we went down to a training camp in Florida. He was there hitting BP, practicing to try and get back in the majors. And I mean, I think that was like a day where I kind of realized, oh, wow, there's just a difference because he was hitting like for him, hitting home runs wasn't really like a thing he had to try to do. He was consciously working on other parts of his game, and he could have hit a home run on every batting practice pitch if he wanted to, without even thinking about it, it felt like. That guy impressed me. I I was there uh, watching, and that guy hit the ball so hard, it came off his bat different than like other 
kids, certainly not all the kids did. And then the guy had the temerity to just pick up the balls and put him in the bucket with all the other guys. And I got a chance to talk to him, but I admired him. And, and his quick story is, is that he didn't quite make 10 years and he wanted to get 10 years in the major leagues, ended his career with the Yankees, uh, and uh, unfortunately fell short. So he didn't get his pension. And uh, I don't know if he ever opened his batting cage in Alabama. But back on October 13th in 2001, he was playing for the A's. And so it was in the seventh inning, game three. What's even more important about this game is the A's had already won the first two games. So they were looking like super well on their way to winning this series. And Terrence Long hits a pitch down the right field line with Jeremy Giambi, Jason's brother, on second base. Now, he turns the ball, he turns the corner, comes running down to home plate, and that's where the throw comes in from right field and it's just off. I mean, it's like forever up the first baseline and it's looking like a nightmare for the Yankees because they're not able to hit the A's pitching. They haven't been able to hit them all series. And then literally out of nowhere, Jeter just shows up and is able to flip the ball back to Posada to make the tag on Giambi because who wasn't sliding because he never in a million years thought there was going to be a play at the plate. And that one play kept the game at a one nothing lead for the Yankees, who were just hanging on at this point. And in a lot of ways, it was kind of like, GD even said it himself, it was like the perfect storm of everything happening. And that one moment really led them to a comeback in that series so that they could then go on to eventually lose the dive back to the World Series. <laughs> on a walk-off, right? <laughs> um, yeah, and Jeter, you know, obviously involved in a few famous postseason plays. Uh, he was in the right place you know, but it was kind of not the right place. It was in the right place because of where the ball was, not because of necessarily where he was standing. He he wasn't supposed to be doing anything. You normally would have never had like, and not that he wouldn't be backing up the throw, but right, he wouldn't right. be backing up the throw in that, in that area. Correct, yeah. correct. And he just had the press. And that's to me what makes it such a special play is that he somehow had the presence of mind to read what was going on and be able to make that play. And you don't see a lot of moments like that in baseball games just because of the nature of the game. Most of it's physical is what you're saying. Yeah. You don't get those moments where you, you're, you're understanding intuitively of the ball's going to be there. Right. And, and, and any idea to be able to do something both mental and physical at the same time at the critical moment. Especially because most of the time, if you're, if you have the, you know, the premonition that the ball is going to be there when you're fielding it, it doesn't even actually look that hard because you're just kind of standing there already. Absolutely. Yeah. That was, that was an amazing play, even if it was from a Yankee. So uh, what's your what's your first play? I'm kind of curious now. So um, because I'm an old guy, I'm going to go old school uh, and talk about a play that happened in the 1941 World Series. And no, I did not see it personally, um, but it involved the Yankees uh, and it also involved the Brooklyn Dodgers. Uh, interesting left for the Dodgers. The Dodgers had not been in the World Series since 1920 when they were called the Brooklyn Robins, which they were called for 17 years. Wait, they were called the Robins? Yeah, they were called the Robins, uh, I think from 1914 to 1931. They were also called the Dodgers, but popularly they're called the Robins. And if you look in the wait, World Series. So, how, wait, wait, I'm sorry to, you know, just sidebar. How did they have two names at the same time? They had a manager named Wilbert Robinson, and they basically uh, affectionately called them the Robins because of Robinson being the manager and so they kind of picked up this name but if you look up some of the history of baseball I think they even list the World Series 
loser as the Brooklyn Robins and not Even the Dodgers. Even that wasn't their official name. Exactly. Okay, I had no idea. So uh, anyway, 1941, the uh, Yankees are in the World Series, and they had won 36 to 39. Look, the Yankees won a lot of World Series, and then they're back in the World Series in 41, and so here come the Dodgers, haven't been there in 21 years, and it's a 2-1 series uh, at this point, and the Yankees are uh, losing to the the Dodgers late in the game, and Mickey Owen is the Dodger catcher. Who was up in the series 2-1? Was it the Yankees or the Dodgers? The Yankees were up 2-1 in the series. The Dodgers are trying to tie the series here. It's the bottom of the ninth inning. There's two out. There's a runner on third, and pitch goes, and batter swings, strikes out, and the game is over and getting written. But wait, no. The catcher didn't catch the ball. So it's it's a drop third strike. It's a drop third strike. Runner goes to first base. Yankees end up tying the game, then winning the game, and they win the series. So Mickey Owens' drop third strike becomes the pivotal play from a 2-2 series to a 3-1 series from which... So that changed the entire the fabric. The never recovered from that. Um, so that, that to me is such a memorable play because it was written about, you know, for years after, and obviously when I was a kid, it wasn't, you know, it was only 25 years old or something like that. Uh, it was, it was a, a special play and Owens had to live that down. He was a really good catcher, but that play sort of hung I, him for his whole career. Oh, especially because I can't think of that many drop third strikes that have had effects just on games in general, but to have it be a, a ninth inning third out drop third strike is in a world series game. It's kind of unbelievable when you think about it even some of the yankees felt sorry for owens you know, like, how could you not that would i mean that's that's a that's, yeah well bill buckner could probably tell you a little bit about yeah, that I was, gonna, I was gonna say it was gonna be the butt fumble of baseball but buckner kind of exists already so uh, how about another one from you so another one from me so in order to get away from the yankees a little bit and you know bring my preferred team into there with with our mets i actually did want to go back to a play that I was present for. Oh. So I I think undoubtedly in terms of amazing defensive plays in the in a playoff game, this has to be up there as one of the top ones of all time. And that would be Andy Chavez's catch in the game seven of the 2006 NLCS between the Mets and the Cardinals. And you and I were both at that game. We had great seats. We were like six rows behind the Mets dugout. We were close enough to say hi to Willie Randolph before the game. I don't know how we got those seats. <laughs> so we're at the game. It's the – what was it? The sixth inning? The seventh inning? I think it was the seventh inning. Uh-huh. And Roland's up to bat. Ironically, two of the guys that involved for the Cardinals were guys we've talked about a whole bunch on this show because Roland was up at the plate with Jim Edmonds on first base. And Roland takes a pitch and crushes it. Out to left field. We thought it was gone. We all, Everybody thought it was gone. But Chavez tracks back, makes the jump at the fence. And because we were at the game, especially with the angle we had, we only just saw him jump up and reach over the fence to make the right. catch. D- d- didn't really know. Didn't really. And then he somehow has the presence of mind to fall back out and then double Edmonds off of first base. Oh, I forgot that. That's right. And so he gets both of those. But there's there's two things I want to bring up. One, looking at the catch after the game. It is incredible how far his entire arm is over that fence. Had some ups, huh? Like what? Not even that. Is it? He was able to fully extend his arm almost backwards, so he had jumped high enough to get his shoulder above the fence just to be able to reach back and make that catch, and then somehow hang on to the ball. But the other thing, the thing I remember way more about after that is the way Shea Stadium was shaking after that catch. That was the loudest I had ever heard that place. 
And I had thought there was no way they could lose the game at that point. And then Beltran takes that third strike from freaking Rain White. Okay, that was a great pitch. It though. was a great pitch, <laughs> but he takes the third strike. Yeah, I, I think he was as fooled as we all were, though. I felt bad for Beltran, too, because I wish he would have swung at it, but I don't think he would have hit it Just, anyway. Yeah, I don't think he was. He would have touched that pitch. It was an unbelievable pitch. But he got a swing. You're right. Memorable. And to be there, like, you know, that, that always makes it fun. Exactly. It reminds so. me of being at, at the game where AG caught the two balls on the 69ers, and I was like a kid. And went, I think when we. When we like were that. kind of discussing and getting ready yeah, for the episode, yeah. this episode, you would always compare the Chavez catch to the Willie Mays one. Mm-hmm. Be- just because it's the same idea of him being able to somehow go back, track that ball, catch it, and then turn around and make that throw. I think it's like the combination is having the throw be part of it. If it was just the catch, that's an unbelievable physical play. But then to have that presence of mind of base runner I can double off elevates it even further. That's a that's a that's a great segue because um, my next play involves uh, Willie Mays. Oh, <laughs> so how about that? And and this is one of the most bizarre plays, right? And in a regular season game uh, in 1965, uh, I know I I didn't see it, but uh, I had heard about it. So you have a pitching matchup between uh, Juan Marichal, uh, Hall of Fame pitcher, who I yeah I, I know Juan Marichal very s- yeah he was he was he played for a long he time played for a right? long time yeah yeah big Dominican uh, right hander when when Dominicans were not you know, as prevalent in the league, uh, and Sandy Koufax of the Dodgers. So you've a pretty got, good pitching matchup. Yeah, you got a Hall of Fame <laughs> pitching matchup here. Um, and the teams are involved in a pennant race, so in 1965, uh, and they've got some bad blood between them because they always have bad now, blood. Now, just to bring it up, because I think this is something that I'm not as aware of just because of the historical aspect. Pennant races back in 65 were a lot more meaningful because of the way the playoff structure was. Right. right. You only had two leagues. Mm-hmm. Right. So you had no divisions. So it was just until, a pe- if you won the pennant, you went to the World Series. Correct. And, and 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 a second division team was referred to as a team that finished in the bottom half of the league. That's all it meant. There wasn't a, a, another division. But being in the pennant race was a lot more meaningful. In some ways, winning the pennant back then was a lot more meaningful than winning one now just because it meant so much more. You're right. You're right. And the Dodgers and the Giants and the history and so on and so forth. Uh, by the way, I, I kind of looked up the Dodgers, you know, through this and, you know, it'd be great to be a Dodger fan, right? Because they have a storied history, even with name changes and whatnot. But their World Series record is six and 14. That, you know, that's a lot of. I mean, here's the thing. The problem is you're not going to get sympathy from like half the fan bases right, in right. the major league. 20 World of, Series. Not because of the 14, but because of the six. And they're <laughs> going to look at that and be like, uh, you got six World Series. Quit your belly aching. Yeah, yeah, you're right about this. So, so this game has, has got some heated tempers and, um, and there's some throwing at batters going on in the game and all that stuff. I mean, Mays got knocked down in the game. Uh, and then in the third inning, Marichal, um, is batting and, and, uh, Johnny Roseboro's the catcher and Koufax is on the mound and, and Roseboro is mad because he got knocked down earlier in the game by Marichal. So he catches a, a ball from, from Koufax and flings the ball right next to Marichal's head back to the pitcher. Marichal claimed that it hit his ear on the way back. So what does Marichal do? He takes his bat and starts beating Roseboro over the head. Wait, so he just like attacks him? He attacks him over the bed. 14 stitches. He's banging him on the head. So who's the peacemaker? Willie Mays. Hmm. Willie Mays comes in and tries to break it up. And a lot of the players said afterward, thank goodness for Mays being there because he really saved that from, from escalating into even something worse, which would be amazing. Um, and yeah, so 
they both get ejected, obviously, from the game. Was Marichelle arrested? Uh, he was not arrested. They didn't wow. do stuff like that. And, and later in life, actually, Marichelle and Roseboro became friends, and they let bygones be bygones, believe it. 14 stitches, he put the guy in the, into right, but the... He put it on the hospital. Of course, Roseboro probably played like three days later because you did that kind of stuff then. So, And the game was actually, you know, both pitchers were shaky after that, and Koufax gave up the game-winning homer, and not in the ninth inning, in the seventh inning, to Willie Mays. And the Giants won that game. But I don't, I don't think there's any play like that in the history of baseball where a guy beat him over the head with the bat. I mean, I can always think of that one play. Like, I honestly can't remember if it's a minor league play or a major league play where the batter gets thrown at and he just really quickly kicks the catcher over in the center of the oh, chest yeah, plate yeah, so that he then can charge the mound without worrying about the catcher. It's like about the only other time I can really remember somebody that and Roger Clemens throwing a bat at Piazza, but I don't think that's quite the yeah, same. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a stupid play. So, okay, you got another one. So go well, ahead. I think ironically keeping it in line with the idea of an incident more so than a play, I think you kind of have to bring up a play that did happen before I was born. But is something that it's still – I don't know. It's like I know this play somehow. I know this whole incident, and that would be the George Brett Pintar incident. Oh, I, well, you know the incident probably because there isn't a baseball highlight show that doesn't have that shot of Brett running out of the dugout like an absolute crazy man. And you, I think it's like because you don't hear everything about that play when a lot of the times it's talk about, it kind of is just boiled down to – he had too much pine tar on the bat. Well, we actually didn't, considering they later won the uh, the uh, protest. The protest, right? But what I didn't realize is that because is the whole story around that play. So Brett hits the game winning home run against the Yankees, right? And then Billy Martin comes out of the dugout, picks on the bat, and says, "There's too much pine tar on it," which the umpires look at, then agree with signal of a dugout he's out which also gave George Brett the unlikely distinction of being the only player to have ever hit a game losing <laughs> home run <laughs> and and i think uh that pine tar was ruled let's see that that there's pine tar on the ball uh because of the the strike and they couldn't find any pine tar on the ball uh and Brett for you know for years afterwards you know complained that you know well they ended up protesting the game they got the protest was overturned and they re- ended up resuming the game 25 days later and the Royals won 5-4. And the Yankees, I think, knew that his bat had too much pointer and they waited for that moment to use it So during the game. I, I so, read something about that. I, 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 but it's like, to me, that's such, even though it's, it's, if it's anything other than a great play, since arguably that's a moment of people were saying at the time, cheating. But that moment, like, I know that moment despite not even being alive at that time because it's just it's just this moment that's been carried on through the ages and that shot of Brett coming out the coming out of the dugout is just such a memorable shot and 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 his being so crazy mad you know had something to do with the Yankees and Royal rivalry that was in the 70s but this is 1983 and the Yankees and the Royals were going nowhere but home after that season but that underlying rivalry between the Yankees and the Royals was there at that especially time. because a guy like Brett had played on exactly. enduring those rivalries exactly. in the past so that he only, felt it more he felt it more than some guy that came up in 83 and had no history between the teams definitely definitely so, so for your last one. one what do you got so uh, you're going to indulge me a little here because I'm going to talk about something that happened a hundred years ago. Ooh, a hundred years ago, which is there's a, an amazing baseball season in 1920. So um, wait, 1920. This is the year 
after the Black Sox, right? Right. So the Black Sox win in 1919. In 1920, Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis, who is the Wait, commissioner. That's one name? That's one name. Um, he is the commissioner who hasn't yet ruled on the Black Sox. So the White Sox and the Yankees and the uh, Indians are all vying for the American League pennant. Okay, so so the 1919 season ends. The Black Sox ruling hasn't been handed down yet. So they're still the legitimate champion in people's eyes at this moment. No, they lost the World Series. Oh, they lost the World Series. They lost the World Series, but no one had talked about the fact that they threw the World Series. Yeah. Okay, so that hasn't that hasn't really hasn't, hasn't really. I, I didn't realize that. So that you, they played. It wasn't until the, the, the 21 season, I think, when they came out with that. So okay. So that, that season is distinguished by a lot of things, and, and the thing that makes it the play, let's go to the play first, uh, was an, the only unassisted triple play in the history of postseason in the major leagues. A guy whose name I can never pronounce, Bill Wamsgans, and I'll spell it W-A-M-B-G-A-N-S-S. So Yeah, so I, I couldn't pronounce that. So he was an infielder, and yeah, you know, in, in the World Series, he caught the ball, uh, stepped on second, and tagged out the runner who was coming from first to second, who didn't stop. Mm-hmm. So there's the unassisted triple play, and that turned that World Series in favor of the Indians, uh, which was an amazing World Series because that was also the season where the only time in the history of Major League Baseball a player was killed due to an injury suffered on the field. I mean, I think that's incredible. I mean, obviously it's not incredible, but it's, it's certainly interesting because I don't really know that story at all. That story, so I, I read a book by Mike Sala called The Pitch That Killed, uh, and it's about an Indian, a uh, very well uh, thought of Indian player at the time, Ray Chapman, young star or whatnot, uh, and the Yankee pitcher at the time, and this guy pitched for the Red Sox championship teams uh, in the teens with Babe Ruth, he moved to the Yankees, Carl Mays, like Willie Mays, but nothing like Willie Mays, and he was a pitcher, uh, and a pretty good pitcher, uh, almost Hall of Fame credentials, mm. if you look it up, uh, but known as, I guess in those days, a headhunter. So 1920 was the first season that they outlawed the spitball. Okay. So now the, we talk about the end of the dead ball era, and so this is kind of what's happening. So all of a sudden, in 1921, Babe Ruth hit a bunch of home runs all of a sudden, and, and the game was was changing. But the 1920 World Series, um, it was because the Indians lost their hero, Ray Chapman, to a pitch that Carl Mays threw, hit him in the head. He dies in the hospital three days later. Wow. Tris Speaker is the manager, Hall of Famer of the Indians, and is so distraught, he, he can't even play the games. They don't play for a few games, and finally rounds his troops up together, and they go out and they play the rest of the season. And the guy that ultimately replaces Chapman at shortstop is a guy named Joe Sewell, who went on to have a Hall of Fame career. But at this time, he's only 19 years old, and he gets in, and he has a great last 30 games and plays into the World Series. So gets an opportunity for the most crazy of reasons. I mean, yeah, that's pretty wild that you would have that kind of follow-up. You would, I mean... And that was a World Series. They played 1920, 1919, 2021. They had a best of nine World Series. Best of nine? Best of nine. So the, the Indians won that World Series five games to two. Oh, that just sounds awful. It just sounds weird, right? It doesn't, you don't like, really... Like, I, I can't imagine that some of those later, like, it, it feels like at a certain point, like, you just want to get it over with. <laughs> well, I'm sure that the uh, the uh, opposition felt that way in that World Series because the Dodgers were, uh, were, and they were the Dodgers, by the way, at that point. So 
just an amazing play. Wamsgans, who became the hero of that World Series for that particular play, but the series itself and that season itself is just such an amazing time in baseball because of what was going on. Yeah, it's certainly historical, just because you had so many, you had so many incidents and moments that took place during that particular season, especially one that doesn't really get talked about because it's sandwiched in between two arguably more important years in a sense. That's true. And and but it was sort of that kickoff into the live ball area, if you will. But people are always going to remember 21 because of Ruth and 19 because of the Sox. So to have this year between the two of them where equally crazy stuff happened, if not crazier, is kind of wild. And the Robins, who lost that World Series, like we said before, wouldn't get into another World Series for 21 years. So it was, you know, yeah. And by the way, the, I think the Dodgers were 0-9 before they won that first World Series in 1955. Oh, that's a big World Series. 0-9. <laughs> And that pretty much wraps up our thoughts on just a few of our plays that we thought should be in the Hall of Fame, especially if they added such a section like that. I mean, we could sit here all day naming famous plays till the end of time, pretty much, because there's always just one more that was incredible. But there is something else we didn't want to talk about coming up. Yeah, we, we've been, you know, people have been asking us, uh, so what about the steroid guys um, and, and, and Pete Rose for that matter. Uh, so I think it's time that we, we tackle the big elephant. Yeah, in the room. Yeah. Cause you know, we, we both have thoughts on this and people want to know. And so that's uh, what we're going to talk about next time.